Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com easter24. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. You know, a lot of philosophy does talk about society, and they use the picture of the home or the house as a way to talk about it. And the other image, of course, is the image of the city. But uh, it strikes me, the more harmonious the home is, the better it functions, and the better people work together. Where there's a home where there's conflict and tension and rivalry and that kind of thing, there's – I'll use a picture – there's static in getting to those to, – to to that cooperation and that relational working side by side. And so um, the picture of infusing shalom, it seems to me, is trying to contribute in as helpful a way as possible towards the towards the mutual betterment, uh, another concept that sometimes comes up in philosophical discussions, I think it's a concept we've completely lost sight of in our culture, is the concept of the common good. Uh, when you're moving towards goals that you can share together and move towards one another together uh, about and through so that you are able to cooperate with one another, in, in some cases even in the midst of you're aware, yes, there are also differences between us, but there is something in common and there's something good that we both can work towards as we sort out, you know, where our tensions are, that kind of thing. Right. And the reason we, in my opinion, the reason we've lost the idea of a common good is we no longer believe that cultural integrity is possible. We no longer believe that it is possible for people of diverse beliefs and backgrounds to have a shared culture, mm -hmm. uh, to have a culture that fits together. Well, if you don't have a culture that fits together, naturally there is no such thing as a good that is shared in common. Yeah, and it becomes uh, because our conception of the our conception of the good is cultural. Yes, and the and the and the alternative then becomes forms of tribalism. Yes, if you don't have common good, then each group stands up for what it represents, in and is kind of in the face of the other group that might challenge it. And yeah. that's a much more obviously that's a much more hostile way to relate oh, uh, yeah. than than the pursuit well, the of common good. My, my professional training uh, is in political philosophy, and uh, it is, uh, it is the, um, it, the, 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 special, uh, the special glory and honor of politics in God's, uh, in God's design is to give us concepts of justice that are not tribal. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's, that's the, great, uh, the great challenge we have is to have an idea of a shared life that does not simply reduce to the will of our group as against the will uh, uh, of your group. Uh, so uh, conceptions like democracy, uh, freedom, uh, uh, these, are, uh, these are the concepts that our culture historically has used to, uh, to develop some ideas of how we can live together in a way that is not simply the assertion of dominance by one group. And the individualization, both at an individual level or in a group level, 
actually erodes at those concepts. And I actually think that's what we're seeing today in a lot of our culture. Yeah, and this is all in Tocqueville. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville has this image of when individuals become isolated from one another, uh, society becomes a great dust of individuals. Like if every individual is a speck of dust, uh, because they're disconnected and there are no like clumps or piles or forms, the dust just spreads out uh, flat. There's a flat dust of individuals. It's, it's dirty that, when there's a lot of dust. No, that's right. Well, <laughs> yeah. and his point, his point is uh, that is when the tyrant steps in. Yeah. Because there is nothing, there is nothing to resist uh, uh, the uh, uh, the big, the, the strong man from from walking over this dust. Because there's no no you know we ha we don't have the ability as isolated individuals to resist it, uh, so giving people a sense of community, a sense of culture that is shared across groups and that is in common, a, a sense of common good, uh, is is really necessary to avoid either tribalism or a sort of uh, just you know uh, dictatorship. Interesting. Uh, like I said, that's a whole other topic it's, it, itself. It's actually something I'm very concerned about. I feel like that our form of individualism has cannibalized our ability to think corporately and across corporate lines, and in that process we've done our body politic a lot of damage. Uh, and, and and we're seeing it so regularly now. Uh, it, we have a very dysfunctional way in which many things function, and it's because we have an inability to think beyond our own group. Uh, yes. and, and that yeah. ends up uh, really eating away at our ability to function alongside one another in the midst of our differences. Um, well, but I, I'm not going to take this podcast there. That's a whole other topic. <laughs> uh, but I say that alongside something else that I do want to add this element. You know, Os Guinness has a concept that there's a kind of freedom, a kind of sense of individual freedom that's suicidal. And that when it's applied, when the individual is the f so much the focus without any discipline or constraint, that actually what you do is you exercise freedom. But it's not a liberty that liberates. It's a liberty that, that destroys. It's a suicidal kind of liberty. And, and I think that that's also part of what we're, what we're seeing here, that if we can't get to, to the place where we can model uh, a concern and a service and an outreach that looks beyond ourselves, uh, that somehow, uh, somehow actually, even though we think we may be defending virtue in a positive kind of way, we actually may be leading to its undermining in many yeah. ways. I think historically it used to be understood that rights arose from duties, mm -hmm. uh, that you had a right as an individual to something only if you had a duty that you had to perform and that the basis of your right as an individual was because you needed the uh, uh, the freedom to carry out your duty. Uh, and so if someone took away your right, they were obstructing you from doing something that you had a moral duty to do. So the right to freedom of religion was present only because people had a duty to worship God according to their conscience. Mm -hmm. uh, the right to uh, liberty was present only because people had a duty to be good stewards of their own lives uh, and to, uh, uh, to take action for the common good. Uh, and so your, your, your liberty was there to free you to, to take action for the common good, to mm -hmm. live for the common good. Uh, property rights were there uh, because you as a human being require uh, property to carry out your stewardship duties. Uh, that was the, the only basis of property rights was that the human person needed property to be a good steward. Hmm. Uh, and, and we need to recover a sense of stewardship. 
We need to recover a sense of duty if we're going to restore any of these freedoms and rights uh, to a, a constructive rather than destructive role. Uh, now, I don't want to give up these rights and freedoms. Not at all. I think that would be a major step back, mm-hmm. but we've got to restore them to a constructive role rather than a destructive role. Well, uh, an- yet another concept in here, I feel like I'm just doing a potpourri of concepts here, but there's a lot to work with that, that it needs to be, is the concept of the church gathered versus the church scattered. And uh, most people in the church, I think, understand or get at and can get their hands around the church gathered. Um, the, it's the church scattered part that we tend to struggle with, and really that's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about how does the church function scattered across the community, uh, mixed in like salt and pepper uh, in the larger community, and do so in a way and that, that it brings savor, if I can keep the metaphor, um, mm-hmm. to the places where God has placed us. That's the, that's the image. I think uh, the the basic concept here, like you say, this is everything we've been talking about, is that the church is still the church even when it's not Sunday morning. That's right. Uh, or, or your Wednesday night Bible study or whatever, you know, whatever the formal gathering is. Or you're not uh, engaged in ministry sometime outside. It, ministry is always happening. Right. All Christians are in full-time service to Christ. Yeah, 24-7. Uh, and, yeah, and, uh, and, and that is not, again, to return to a theme, that is not an isolated individual experience. That's right. Uh, we think about Christianity as a group activity uh, Sunday morning and Wednesday evening, but we don't think about Christianity as a group activity uh, you know, during the other time uh, when we're not doing those formal church-gathered activities. But we need to begin to think about Christianity as a group activity, uh, something that we do uh, together with other Christians uh, when we are not the church gathered on Sunday morning or Wednesday evening, uh, joining together with other Christians uh, in our vocational fields, in, uh, in our neighborhoods, wherever we end up uh, you know, living our lives. Uh, to to uh, carry out common purposes together. You know, I, I think it's interesting. I know that there are some churches that have begun to organize their small groups around vocations, mm-hmm. so that all the artists meet together. You know, all the lawyers meet together. Uh, that kind of thing. And I, I think it's an interesting concept because what it's designed to do is to help people encourage one another out of their faith commitment on the one hand, but where they are also living and they have shared expertise on the other in the rest of their lives. And and uh, rather than just having a mix and a match, in some cases having these specialized vocational small groups, it seems to me is an acknowledgment of appreciating what the church scattered can and ought to be. Mm-hmm. I think it's not just appreciating uh, appreciating it, it actually, that, that is it, that's you know empowering it. Uh, uh, and it's necessary because we're made for relationship and we're made for community. We need to get together with people in our uh, uh, in our fields uh, and think about what does it mean to practice Christian virtue as a scholar or as a uh, an artist or a lawyer. Uh, now that can be um, that can be very different in say a blue collar type of setting rather than in uh, a white collar type of setting, and it may not be you know the the Christian factory workers get together in a vocational group mm-hmm. uh, for factory workers. But believe me, you know they, they they there is community to be had, there is relationship to be had, and that mutual that sort of mutual reinforcing of Christian virtue in our vocations uh, is something that I think we all need.
This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will me to hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. You know, you've, you've, it's like you knew where I wanted to go next. Um, I've got uh, – I have a staff that looks at – that is looking at these, this piece, Theology That Works, as we work and actually sending uh, me questions that they think I should ask, of which I've only asked a few, which is shame on me. But anyway, um, but there was two – there were two sets of questions here that I thought uh, immediately come to mind in light of what you've just said that they raised, and it and – it, and as we're kind of wrapping up here, I'm getting ready to come to a section in which you talk about the special responsibility that business leaders have because of the way in which they have oversight over larger corporate structures that influence society. And you're getting also ready to make the point that um, clergy and this level of laity have very little cross-contact. I think you cite a thing that says almost two-thirds of Christians in elite social positions are not active in their local churches, which shows a complete disconnect in the area. I'm going to come back to that later, okay. but, but, I'm, but I'm setting the stage for, for the question I'm going to ask, and it has to do with what about the people who have kind of the average everyday job? You know, they're not in management. They're they're not controlling where companies go. They're not CEOs, uh, and so he says, "How do we communicate the concept of entrepreneurial blessing to a congregation which includes people who do not see themselves as entrepreneurial, or I might add, do not function in kind of what we traditionally see as entrepreneurial roles? Or how do we communicate to people the idea of infusing shalom into a society if they don't perceive themselves as leaders or influencers in the community, and in fact, they may not be." You know, they they may have a very, for lack of a better description, common role and a common job. Um, how do, how does this work for that level of our society? Yeah, and I think it is a real growth need in the faith and work movement nationally to be able to speak more to people who have less agency uh, in their work, uh, who are not able to uh, uh, control the, the the environment or the structures of their work, who who don't get to decide. You know how they do the work because they have a boss who tells them uh, how the work is to be done. Uh, so I think that's a that's it's a very important question. Um, I think first of all, Pete, you, you mentioned uh, the the two things that stood out to me: one, uh, people who don't see themselves as entrepreneurs, and two, people who don't see themselves as leaders or influencers. And I think in both cases. Uh, part of what we need to do is help people think of themselves in that way wherever they are. Uh, and those words may not be the best words for doing that. Uh, but if you think about uh, to be an entrepreneur uh, uh, is not simply about owning your own business. Uh, an entrepreneurial mindset is about having agency, uh, seeing yourself as someone 
uh, who does rather than someone who is acted upon. Someone, someone who, who can acts. be an influence wherever they have. Right. Well, and that's why it's connected to, yeah. I'd, I'd say, uh, your sphere of influence may be small, but you have a sphere of influence because to be human is to have a sphere of influence. Uh, this is, you know, that, that stewardship uh, that God made human beings for is not eradicated. Uh, we are stewards, uh, and you can't escape that. You're a steward whether you, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not. Uh, you have influence on the people around you. Uh, and, and, and a good illustration of that, you think about uh, on, a, on a factory floor, uh, there, there will, there, typically there may be a guy who's been there for 30 years, uh, and everybody knows him, uh, and he has a reputation as the guy who looks out for people, or the guy who mm -hmm. uh, uh, helps you get things done that need to get done, or something like that. You know, that person is an influencer and a leader. Uh, and, you know, you, you get to any institution uh, uh, that's been around for a while, pretty quickly you discover there are people who are not high on the org chart, per se, but have a lot of influence and power, uh, sometimes for good and sometimes for bad. Uh, but one way or another, there will be people who, uh, either because of their good example or, or for whatever reason, uh, have become leaders and influencers. Uh, and I think we all have that opportunity to some extent. Uh, so I think we want to help people see themselves as uh, uh, actors, not simply uh, uh, being acted upon, uh, and as someone who has an influence, even if it's in a small sphere. Well, um, this brings us to the last area, and this is a terrible way to end because this is how this is. We're at the end of this section, and yet at the same time, I, I sense it may be setting up a transition in the larger piece, and that is this uh, this. This I don't know what else. This part on the one hand, this desire that there be a partnership between clergy and laity, particularly particularly laity that do have uh, more direct agency to use your word, people who have who are in positions of influence, and the current lack of connection that exists between these two groups, and certainly lack of dialogue that exists between these two groups. I suspect that what we've just walked into is exactly why the Kern Family Foundation exists, and uh, and and that th it is this gap in particular that uh, is certainly one of the things that that is uh, why the foundation has put this uh, this topic on the table for the church to urge the church to think about it and what the impact is if this gap would be uh, reduced and dealt with. I, uh, just a, a small correction to something you said. Okay. I'd say it's why our program on faith, work, and economics exists. We okay. have other programs uh, uh, dealing with other issues uh, and, and other challenges. Uh, but our program on helping the church reconnect with this area of work in the economy, uh, it, it would not be necessary if there were not this widespread estrangement between religious professionals and economic professionals. Uh, the, they each bring something indispensable to the table. Uh, uh, religious professionals have a store of knowledge and wisdom about the Word of God and the, uh, the historic Christian faith uh, that, that we all need. Uh, and the, the, the pastor is an indispensable uh, a member of the of the both the faith community and the human community, uh, and the economic professionals are uh, the the people who do the work and the people who understand the world of work that is outside uh, the walls of the church, uh, and and their knowledge needs to be on the table as well. Uh, that just as every individual human being is both a creature of God and a creature of human culture, uh, 
we need both uh, religious professionals and economic professionals bringing their knowledge to the table. And part of the problem is they eat with the, uh, very often one side will not recognize that the other side has knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that uh, was transformational for me when I read Dallas Willard's book, uh, Knowing Christ Today. And uh, one of the things I got out of that book is huge amounts of uh, the way we work the way we live both in the church and in human society is based on who has who we think has knowledge who do you think are the people with knowledge uh, so I think we need to recognize that uh, pastors and seminary professors and other religious professionals have a knowledge that that needs to that we need to learn from uh, and we also need to recognize that economic professionals have knowledge uh, that that we need to learn from and that uh, you're not allowed to simply dictate to the other side uh, what their uh, approach should be uh, on, on the conceit that you understand this issue and they don't. Uh, rather, we all need to come to the table and say, okay, both sides have some knowledge that needs to be integrated. Uh, and that's a process that's, uh, you know, re returning to this theme again, we're made for relationship. We're made for community. Uh, the, the Lord has not made us to um, be Lone Ranger Christians uh, and figure out our faith on our own. Uh, the Lord has made us for a faith community in which we build each other up. And, 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 and this is a picture of the kind of uh, potential for reconciliation that also is at the center of what we're talking about, this ability to recognize that you have skills and gifts that I don't have, and mm -hmm. that uh, we are much better drawing on that larger pool together than each of us functioning individually in our own more isolated worlds. Uh, yeah, C.S. Lewis said when there are two Christians together, there is not twice as much Christianity, there is 16 times as much. That's interesting. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot to that. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think that's, uh, to, to give you a positive and, and optimistic, upbeat note to end on, that's uh, good. There, is a lot of, there is a lot of power waiting to be tapped. Uh, and, and because we are not without hope in the world, we have the ability to start tapping it. And it's actually, it's starting to happen now. Uh, and I've been very encouraged by the changes we've seen in the last few years. Well, we're only uh, uh, really just about 40% through this document in the two podcasts that we've done. And we have much more to go. There's much more to explore. But I, I, I sense we're laying a good groundwork for people and that uh, there's a lot here to reflect on. Uh, I used to say about the center that the center was a wonderful place for theological reflection and for practical reflection, but without some good core sociology, it wasn't going to make any sense. And what I'm excited about and what we're talking about is, is that I think we're helping people who don't have a sociology degree or who don't think about sociology and economics and politics and that kind of thing as a, as a regular basis, give them some, some hooks. To, to hang on and to think about as they think about the integration of their lives, as they think about how God walks into certain spheres of life. They certainly know God has them active in because every nine to five, they're there where God has them, and hopefully with some thought about how, how that can impact their life in a positive way so that when they invest their time and their energy into those relationships and into those responsibilities, into those duties, if you will, they do it with, a, with in, with such virtue and with such character and with such shalom and such blessing that they're productive and they change the environment that they work in and their work becomes more fulfilling as a result. How's that Amen for positive? That. How's that Amen for positive? Well, great. Well, I'm, 
I'm not a sociologist, but I am a social scientist, and uh, I, I'm eager. I'm eager to bring our our knowledge to the table uh, and and get get theology and social science into dialogue uh, for the life of the church. Well, that's what we're attempting to do, and I really appreciate your taking our t our time to do it. Obviously, you're going to be invited back because we're going we're going through the document till we're done. We're going from A to Z, and we're probably about what letter J or something at this point. So we got a ways to go. Thanks you, thank you again, Greg, for being a part of our discussion, and we thank you for being a part of the table where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. Thank you.